Hey everyone, welcome back to Recalibrate, a mindset podcast designed to help you break free from the old and press on to the new. I appreciate you connecting every week to listen, to learn, and to grow. If you have enjoyed this podcast, would you take a few minutes to give us a five-star rating and leave us a positive review? I value your feedback. In advance, thank you. I hope you were able to go to the show notes for part one and ask yourself if any of the low self-worth descriptors apply to your life. Look, every once in a while, I'm going to provide you with specific questions to help you reflect on where you stand and to also challenge you to create the better version of yourself. Listen, you can't defeat what you can't define and you can't change what you're unwilling to confront. Let me say that again. You can't defeat what you can't define. In other words, you need to know who you're fighting here. You need to know what your giant looks like and sounds like so that you can take the right ammo, the right, the right armor to confront the issue. And you can't change what you're unwilling to confront. You can't simply stonewall your problems. You can't isolate yourself from the things that uh, are hurting you and not confront them. Confronting is going to bring forth change. Look, self-awareness is key in the process of growth, in the process of becoming the better version of yourself. Self-awareness is the conscious knowledge of one's own character, feelings, motives, and desires. Self-awareness requires that you ask yourself three important questions. What am I doing? What am I feeling? And what are my blind spots? As a Master Life Coach, I have clients fill out a personal SWOT analysis in order to help them become more self-aware. You've probably heard of a SWOT analysis. SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, those are usually used in corporate companies, departments, businesses. It helps the organization become more self-aware of where they stand. Well, when you do it in a personal level, it does the exact same thing. It helps expose certain areas of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It asks four important discovery questions. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are my opportunities? And what are my threats? You see, becoming self-aware takes your life off of uh, autopilot and out of the cyclical monotony that keeps taking you to the same dead-end street every single time. Self-awareness allows you to shift, adjust, and pivot your life in order to produce a different outcome. Einstein once said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting different results. Now, isn't that true? So someone asked me the other day why the podcast series was called The Boy That Saw a Dead Dog in the Mirror. And I said, well, I'm glad that you asked. (laughs) As I've mentioned previously, I'm a man of faith and I oftentimes refer to the Bible to find examples or stories to use when I teach, and today is not the exception. The Bible speaks of a young man named Mephibosheth. His story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, Mephibosheth, just to give you a little bit of a background, Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, who was a fierce warrior, and he was the son of Jonathan, who was an accomplished soldier. Now, keep in mind, Mephibosheth was a child. He grew up in a royal home. He was surrounded by servants. He was surrounded by everything a child could ever want or even need. 
Mephibosheth, at a very young age, was hit by a crude reality. His father and grandfather, which he depended on, had gone off to war and had lost their lives. The same day, same time. When word got back to the royal palace that Mephibosheth's grandpa and father had passed away, the nanny immediately grabbed Mephibosheth, who was a child, ran and fled the scene. Now, why did she do that? Well, she knew that the opposing army was going to come to them and annihilate every member of the royal family. So in order to safeguard this young man that she felt responsible for, she took him in her arms and she ran as fast as she could to a place called Lodabar. Now, in the process of running towards Lodabar, the nanny trips and falls on top of Mephibosheth, crippling both of his legs. Now, not only is he a refugee at this point, now he is crippled of both legs. So at this point, Mephibosheth is unable to stand on his two feet, let alone ever go to battle like his father and grandfather. Now, they go to this place called Lodabar. Now, Lodabar has different meanings. Lodabar means the house of no bread. Lodabar also stands for desolate place. Lodabar was a place for the unwanted, the sick, the lame, the outcasts, the underdogs. And there was Mephibosheth from a royal lineage. We're talking about Mephibosheth, whose father was a prince, whose grandfather was a king. And now here he stands, or actually he doesn't stand because he's lame, he's crippled, he can't walk. And he spends the rest of his life pretty much growing up in Lodabar. Now, years go by, years. Now Mephibosheth, fast forward, is an adult. He's still living in Lodabar. And King David, who was Jonathan's best friend back in the day, He summons his servant and asks for him to go and find someone, if anyone was left from the house of Saul, that he can bless in Jonathan's name. He said, in other words, you know, Jonathan and I had such a great relationship that I want to make sure that if anyone was left from that house, I want to make sure that I bless them in my friend's name. And so Seba, the servant, sets off to Lodabar because he's heard that Perhaps there might be one member left from the house of Saul. He finds Mephibosheth, comes back to the king, and informs him. And so King David summons Mephibosheth to appear before his throne. Now, Mephibosheth knows that his life has no value. I mean, come on. He's grown up in Lodabar, the house of no bread, the desolate place, surrounded by the outcasts, the underdogs, the sick. And he also knew that after a change in dynasty, the custom of the day was to execute the previous royal line. He knows King David can kill him on the spot to eliminate any competition for the throne. So Mephibosheth feels helpless and hopeless. He shuffles on his lame feet, crawling into the new king's house to answer David's summons. 
He throws himself on the ground before David. Now picture this. He throws himself down on the ground before David, declaring himself to be nothing more than a dead dog. He says to the king, Who am I, Lord, that you would call a dead dog to your presence? A dead dog. So now do you see the reason for the title? The boy who saw a dead dog in the mirror? That's why. See, this young man, this young man had been born and raised the first few years of his life in a palace under the care of nannies, nurses, servants. He had been fed the finest foods. He was cared for. He was pampered. He was loved. He was important. But yet, sometime or somewhere in his childhood years, there was a shifting. There was a breaking point. There was a a termination of a chapter and a start of a new one. He went from the palace to Lodabar, the place of no bread, the desolate place, where he was raised for the next few formative years of his life and became an adult. So what we see is that that experience of moving away to what he knew as his normal, going into a new normal, warped his mind. It, it created thought patterns. It created mental constructs, a belief system, a worldview, a filter through which he saw himself. You see, he no longer saw himself as the son of a prince, the grandson of a king, a fierce warrior, potentially a future king himself. No, no, he saw himself as a dead dog. You see, this story The story is a clear picture of how external factors in a child's formative years have the influence power to mold and to shape his or her perception of self. He qualified himself as a dead dog. There is a mental illness called body dysmorphic disorder, which refers to individuals that obsess over the physical flaws, which at times are nothing but a figure of their imagination. And of course, their imagination is fueled by experiences and words. You see, Your environment has a big impact on who you are and how you feel about yourself. You don't necessarily have to be lame or crippled to see yourself as one. A lot of people are completely whole and healthy, but yet their body dysmorphic disorder causes them to see something that is non-existent. And they also have a tendency to magnify the little things, causing those little things to become their greatest weakness inhibiting them from becoming the person that God has called them to be. People that repeatedly experience significant rejection by others end up believing that they deserve to be rejected. You see, they internalize the message and then they reject themselves. This is especially true when the rejection is coming from those who are in authority and that the child depends on. For instance, parents. Or teachers. I've always said that teachers, and I'm an educator myself, teachers have this amazing power, this this influence over the life of a child. Now keep in mind, if you're a parent and you're listening, keep in mind that your child will spend at least eight hours a day with a teacher, with a specific person. And that teacher will forge, shape, mold the child's worldview. In other words, their perception of the world. 
they will apply their own filter into that child's life and that child will see the world through that one filter because that teacher has so much influence on their lives. And therefore, you must be very careful how you choose who you're going to allow your child to be educated by. That's why a lot of people choose homeschooling. But you have to choose wisely because people, people's words have tremendous influence on the lives of those precious, moldable, pliable, receptive, impressionable minds. I raised 14 foster kids, 12 boys, (laughs) yes, and two girls. If I had to, I would do it all over again. It was a wonderful experience. Being able to impart, being able to influence, being able to touch lives for eternity, I would do it all over again. But let me tell you, all 14 of these kids... They all came in with a commonality. Their inner voices were not in alignment with God's word and God's promises for their lives. Those inner voices were replaying the big booming voices that they had heard over the years. Most of these kids had been neglected and had been removed from their homes for that same reason. And so when they came into our house, we practiced something that we called the 777. Now, if you've known me for some time, if you've ever been to my conferences or you've heard me preach, you know what the 777 looks like. Now, people say, well, hey, why why do you call it the 777? And I go, well, you know what? I'm not going to call it the 666, man. (laughs) I'm a man of faith. That's not going to sound right. So I call it the 777. Seven is a biblical number. The three sevens stand for seven words of affirmation, seven I love yous, and seven hugs a day. Yes, every single day. You see, the only way that we would be able to overpower the big booming voices in the minds and hearts of those little ones would be by replacing it with the polar extreme opposite. So what did we do? We found seven different characteristics in that child that we would highlight. In other words, seven affirmations. Hey, I like the way you look. I like the way you did that. You are so awesome. You're such a smart kid. We would make sure to tell them that they were loved at least seven times a day throughout the day, whether it was spoken or on a written note. And last but not least, seven hugs. We would make sure to give them a hug every day, seven times a day, throughout the day. Now, what what is so special about a hug? Well, let me tell you. Most of these little ones that come in from neglect, that have been fed lies that they have believed over time, their stress levels are so high. In other words, there's a biology that, uh, that happens. There is a hypothalamic reaction. The Hypothalamus and the amygdala, they interact when, when kids or adults are going through extreme stress. And the hypothalamic reaction sends a signal to the adrenal glands, and the adrenal glands, of course, secrete cortisol, which is the stress hormone. And that causes all kinds of mishaps in a kid's life or an adult's life. So a hug has the potential to lower the cortisol, and this is amazing, lowers the cortisol and increasing increasing the oxytocin, which the oxytocin is the love hormone, which is what uh, causes the whole body to 
feel an, an, over, an overall sense of, of peace. And so by practicing the 777 in a matter of a few weeks, we would see extreme change in the lives of these children. And, and I, would, I would dare to say that about, out of the 14, only two of them were ever placed on tricyclic medication. They were ever, ever placed on controlled substances to help them regulate their behavior. Only two out of the 14. The other 12, the other 12 were perfectly fine with the 777. The other two, they did have uh, a chemical imbalance in their brain, whether it was serotonin, dopamine, that required medication to help boost uh, those areas in their brain. The words spoken over us by our parents or people in authority in our lives, 90% of the time, those words become prophetic. They materialize in adulthood, unless we're able to override such thoughts with the extreme polar opposite. Otherwise, you end up developing self-limiting beliefs. You'll look at yourself in the mirror, and you too will see a dead dog. My father understood this concept very well. He, he understood the fact that environment and words could become our reality, if we accepted them, of course, for ourselves. But he also understood that children at such an early age are impressionable. And I recall at seven years of age walking into a doctor's office with my father. You see, I was there to get a physical. I was uh, wanting to join the soccer team at the local school, and I was going to go to the tryouts. But in order to go to the tryouts, I needed to make sure that I passed the physical. So when I walked into the doctor's office, of course, the routine checkup, when the doctor asked for me to take off my shoes and he looked at my feet, he said, oh my gosh, your feet, your feet are so flat. They are extremely flat. I remember hearing him say that I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I was seven years old. My dad looked at him and said, and, and so what is the matter, doctor? He said, well, this kid's never going to play soccer. He's never going to run. I mean, come on, look at his feet. They're so flat. He's going to develop all sorts of back problems. Athletics is not for you, young man, he said. He said, focus on academics. And I looked at him and I said, but, but I want to play sports. I want to run. I want to be in track and field. I have dreams and aspirations of someday running a marathon. And I, I had no clue uh, that a marathon was 26.2 miles. I just recall having watched the Olympic Games and watching the marathon. And, and, and I was so amazed by the speed, by the endurance, by their, their stride that I too wanted to be a runner. He looked at me and he says, well, you might want to scratch that off of your, your, your list because you're never, you're never going to run a marathon. I walked out of that doctor's office that day completely discouraged, demoralized, heartbroken, to say the least. My father noticed my demeanor. He got down at my eye level and he asked me, what's the matter, son? And I said, well, I guess I'm never going to run. I guess I'm never going to qualify for the team, and I'm never going to run a, a marathon. I guess I'm never going to be in athletics. My father taught me a lesson that day. He taught me the power of a small word, a three-letter word. He said, you haven't made it on the team yet. You haven't run track yet, and you haven't finished your marathon yet. That day, he taught me the power of yet. He said, if you take that word and you apply it 
to the statement that seems like an impossibility. He says, yet will give your impossibility the probability of possibility. (laughs) It sounds like a tongue twister, right? (laughs) But seriously, it will make your impossible possible. Every time you have an idea that contradicts your goals, vision, your mission, your desires, every time that voice shows itself, that self-sabotaging voice, that self-limiting belief, immediately attach yet to it and watch how your whole perception and your feeling toward that one idea will completely change. Once again, it will give your impossible the probability of possibility. And you might be asking yourself, well, did that flat-foot kid ever run a race? (laughs) Well, this flat-footed kid did actually run a marathon in 2011, the New York City Marathon. That was my dream. That was the marathon that I had watched on TV that very day that impressed me so much and encouraged me to get on my feet and to train. I trained for many years. I ran short races did a little bit of track, but my focus was on that marathon. And in 2011, I ran 26.2 miles from Staten Island across the Verrazano Bridge through five boroughs all the way to Manhattan to Central Park and to finish the race. 26.2 miles. And let me tell you this, and I'm not wanting to sound pompous or arrogant. Believe me, that's not me. What I share with you today is not to impress you. It's only to impress upon you that if I was able to do it, so can you. Not only did I run the New York City Marathon, I went on to run Chicago, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, McAllen, and so on and so forth. And let me tell you that so far, I think that easily I've run perhaps 200 races so far. So the power of yet is powerful. Now, once again, as a man of faith, I must admit that my focal point has always been running the race set before me. And it's not a race that has anything to do with running. It has to do with eternity. But I use that as a metaphor in my life to pursue the goal that has been set before me. So I use that same idea or that same scripture when I run. I focus on the prize. I focus on the goal. I focus on finishing. And of course, my favorite verse when running is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I focus on that. Actually, for every race, I pick a different verse, and that's my focus. I was able to break the paradigm that could have had power over my life and kept me from reaching the goal. I would have looked at myself in the mirror, and I would have seen a dead dog. But my father was quick enough and wise enough to help me turn that around. For a child, it's rather difficult to pick up on self-limiting ideas that might cross their mind. However, as adults, we become more self-aware. We are able to pick up on ideas or words that are limiting or sabotaging. I mean, let's be honest. Who do you talk to the most? Who do you listen to the most? The answer is yourself. 
As you sit at the doctor's office waiting for your name to be called, as you're driving from work to home, from home to work, as you are riding your bike or jogging down the street, think about it. Who do you talk to the most? You talk to yourself. So ask yourself the question, am I empowering myself or am I sabotaging my life by the words that I am speaking? Carry an index card with you, and as you have that self-limiting belief, Write it down, and then think of the polar opposite of that self-limiting belief. If, if the idea is simply, I can't, well, then the opposite is, I can. Once again, as a man of faith, I like to attach scripture to it. So if the idea that I'm having in my mind is, I can't, and then the opposite is, I can, then I'll look for a scripture that lines up with that idea, which would be, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If the thought that's going on in my mind is that I am too fearful, then the polar opposite would be that I am courageous. And I would look for scripture, for instance, I would quote Joshua, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Fear not for the Lord thy God is with you wherever you may go. And, and so on and so forth. So whenever I have this recurrent thought, I can always pull out my index card and rehearse the opposite and quote the scripture, which was opposite to that self-limiting belief. And as I practice this consistently, I will eventually override those self-limiting beliefs. But key number one is to become self-aware of what they are. If you don't put a handle on those self-limiting, self-sabotaging beliefs, they will affect your self-worth. Now, let me tell you, in order to break these paradigms or this crazy thought cycle, you're going to have to be extremely intentional. You're going to have to be extremely disciplined, and you're going to have to be extremely, listen to me, consistent. Remember last time I mentioned that Dr. Caroline Leaf says that it takes 21 days to break a habit. 63 days to form a new one. You're going to have to be extremely consistent about this if you want to produce a different outcome. Otherwise, those false ideas that have been planted in your mind over time will become your reality. In case you haven't realized it already, I am a storyteller. I love to teach using stories and parables, and I've got one last story for you today that really resonates with this whole idea of self-limiting beliefs and paradigms, mental constructs, thought patterns. Those are things that affect your self-worth and really have power to dominate your life. And there's a story that I love that I often share, and it's about a dog. Now, this, this dog, this particular dog was adopted as a puppy by a family. And the first thing that they did upon receiving it in their home was to put a collar around its neck and hook it up to a leash, and that leash was tied to a tree. And so for the next five years, that dog basically grew up next to that tree. It ate there, it drank water there, it slept there, it rested there, it played there, all while being tied to a tree for five years. Now, every day of that dog's life, there was a cat, there was a stray cat. And that cat knew that that dog was tied and that it only had the ability 
to run six feet away from the tree trunk because that's how long the leash was. And actually, you could tell that the dog could only run that far because it had already created a path. You could see it in the dirt. You could see the wear and tear of that dog going back and forth for five years on that one particular spot that only extended six feet. And so that cat would walk by every single day and it would tantalize, taunt this poor dog. And this dog would run all the way to the six foot mark and right there, the, the, the leash would yank it back because that's as far as it would go. This dog did it every single day of its life. It didn't know what freedom felt like. It had never been freed from that tree. It had never been taken on a walk. It had never been set loose from that collar. And so for five consecutive years, this occurred on a daily basis until one day the owner, he felt, I guess, a little bit of remorse, maybe a little bit of compassion for that poor dog. And it went over to the tree and it, and it released the dog from its collar. The dog was free. It was literally free, free to go. But that dog just sat there right underneath the tree in the shade next to the tree trunk where it had sat for five years. And as soon as that cat appeared, now the cat didn't notice, by the way, that uh, the dog was no longer wearing that collar. It didn't notice. Otherwise, the cat's pretty smart. It probably would have had second thoughts about, you know, going over and messing with the dog, but the cat didn't see that. So the cat walked right by the dog. It walked the same route as it did every day for five years, knowing that the dog could only go six feet and not reach it. Well, as soon as the dog saw the cat, its ears perked up, its body got into running position, and when it saw the cat come close, it charged at the cat. Charged at the cat with all of its might as it did every day, and once it hit the six-foot line, it came to a complete and abrupt stop. Yes, it stopped. I know what you're thinking, but there was no collar, there was no leash. The dog was free. Yes, yes, the dog was physically free, but yet mentally bound. Let me say that again. This is your aha moment, guys. The dog was physically free, but it was mentally bound. So some of you are probably asking, so how is that relevant? Why is that relevant? Well, the collar and the leash represent the self-sabotaging, self-limiting beliefs Those mental constructs are thought processes and patterns that we have in our minds that have been developed over the years, starting in our most formative years as children. And the fact that the dog was released from the leash and the collar, and yet it could not run, just shows how we have this potential to do greater things, to go a longer distance, to to achieve higher goals. But yet those thought patterns, although invisible, although they are not something that is holding us literally physically bound to something, they still have the potential to hold us back. We have the potential to go a greater distance, as I said, but yet those those paradigms have a greater power over us if we do not realize what they are and deal with them. So people always ask the proverbial question, so how can I change my life in a few easy steps? And the answer is, number one, it's not easy. There are no three easy steps. But if I could summarize you know, the uh, process in three steps, I would say, number one, change your beliefs. 
Number two, once you change your beliefs, your behavior will also change. And number three, once you change your behavior, then you will produce a different outcome. So it all starts with your beliefs. And in order to identify what your beliefs are and whether or not they are toxic for you, you have to be more self-aware. And then you're going to have to be disciplined enough to write them down, to write the opposite, to rehearse them in your mind so that you can alter your belief system, therefore producing a different biology and consequently producing a different outcome. So it's not not that easy. However, it's doable, but it's going to take a consistent effort on your part in order to make it happen. Henry Ford once said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're absolutely right. In other words, whatever you think about self becomes your reality. In other words, it determines your destiny. So let me leave you with these final thoughts. Self-limiting beliefs have a sound. They have a certain uh, tone to them, and they sound like this. I can't. I don't. I won't ever. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too poor. I'm too fat or too skinny. I'm not smart enough. I'm a mess. I am hopeless. I don't have enough time. Money is the root of all evil. One day, yeah, one day I'll change. I'll start tomorrow. I will never be happy. I don't deserve nice things. I have such bad luck. This is my lot in life. I can't change. Why even try? I always fail. So, Those statements are definitive of people who have self-limiting beliefs. Take some time, review them, look at the show notes, and reflect on them and ask yourself, does this sound like me? And if it does, write it down. Write the opposite and attach either a scripture or an affirmation that you can rehearse in your mind in order to replace that belief. Otherwise, you, just as Mephibosheth, will see a dead dog in the mirror, not realizing that within you lies a great warrior or a beautiful, courageous princess. God bless you, my friends.